it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 440 for May 27th, 2016. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. We are back with Bart Bouchot's with Programming by Stealth, episode 15 of X. Looks like we're going to do a little bit more JavaScript this week, huh? We are. Are you sure this is the right show number? Oh, don't mock me for last week. I don't know why, but ever since I split off Chit Chat, I've had trouble getting the numbers right. And I, I even had it written down last time with Antonio and I still got it wrong. So, oh, well, well I, I'm a podcaster who starts just before every show starts, goes to www.less-talk.ie, scrolls down to find the last number, adds one and still gets it wrong sometimes. <laughs> well, I do have a uh, text expander script for NoSilicast, but I don't have one for Chit Chat, which I probably should. Yeah. All okay. right, what are we going to do today? Assuming I don't fall asleep because someone made me get up very early today. I'm sorry. Uh, we're... <laughs> so, yeah, Actually, so... I didn't do it. <laughs> no, no, you arrange it and then continue to sleep. It's <laughs> even more evil. So uh, Alison decided that I would be a great guest on something called the Phileas Club. <laughs> so she arranged for me to be on. Oh, yeah, and the guy doing it is in Japan. So that meant Bart had to podcast at 7 a.m. And Bart doesn't believe there's a 7 a.m. My iPhone was still in night mode when I woke up. <laughs> Wrong. Anyway, All so right. it's now nine p.m. and I've been up since six thirty a.m. So oh. this is not this is not my normal <laughs> sleep cycle at all. Anyway, if you start snoring, I'll just uh, I'll take over the class and read along. <laughs> okay, so where we are in our little story? So we're still in our sandbox for another day, um, and we're going to learn another Lego brick in the world to becoming a programmer. And this is another one of those bricks that is ubiquitous across programming languages because it's so fundamental. It's the ability to bundle up, to package up a little bit of code and give it a name so you can reuse it over and over and over again. So instead of reinventing the wheel and copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, you simply re-invoke some named code you've written earlier. Ooh. So it's our, our our first piece of code reuse. Hmm. And code reuse will happen at bigger and bigger scales as we as we learn more. But this is the first level of it, and it's something called a function. So you define a function by basically bundling together a bunch of statements, which together do something useful, and then you will give that function a name that hopefully is descriptive enough that you will know what you're doing when you read your own code. That's, that's a good idea not to call your functions A, B, C, and D. <laughs> Okay, you get to name them then. You get to name them. Uh, Functions also take inputs optionally and give outputs optionally. So you could have a function that takes no inputs and no outputs, but just does something like maybe for some reason you might say print 10 as the name of a function, which will print hello world 10 times. That doesn't need any input. It doesn't produce any output. It just does something. Or you can have a function that takes 10 inputs, gives you nothing back. Or maybe one that takes no inputs and gives you something back, or one that takes five inputs and gives you something back. So all of these permutations are possible. So there may or may not be input, and there may or may not be output, but it'll do something. Okay. Uh, we call, just because we're computer scientists, we call the inputs, we call them arguments. Okay. That's our first piece of terminology for the day. So functions take arguments, and those arguments are little pieces of data that you hand to the function, which it will use while it's doing its thing. So if you write a function to square two numbers, it will need two arguments, the first number and the second number. So otherwise it can't square two things. Right? So that, that's, what, that's what arguments are for. Now, the other thing to say is these function jobbies, we've seen them already. We've already used them. 
pbs.say is a function that I wrote to make our playground function. And that is a function that takes one argument, which is the text to print out, and returns no result. Another function I've written that we have been using is pbs.inputs. Wait a minute. What which, do you mean it returns no output? When you do PBSA, it types it to the screen. Right. Isn't that the but, output? No. Okay. So when I say returns output, I mean that it would go on the other end of an equals and that you have some sort of value that you can stick into a variable. Okay. So if you square two numbers, what you will get back, or if you multiply two numbers together, you will say var x equals my square function number one comma number two. And then the output will be shoved into the variable on the other side of the equals, right? You'll do something sure. with a return value. Okay, so just spinning out what say, you put in isn't, isn't doing that. Right, because there's nothing going into a variable afterwards. There is no value that comes oh, okay. out that you can do something with. Okay. Yeah, no, that's actually an important subtlety. Thank you for raising that. So when we see it on a line of our code, there's no equal sign at all. That's sort of how you can tell that it's returning nothing. So we don't say something equals pbs.say, we just pbs.say on its own. Okay. Okay. So that's an example that takes one argument, which is what we'd like to print out, and it returns no value. Another function we've come across is pbs.inputs, with a, cap, with a pluralized form, which we learned last time, takes no arguments. There's nothing, there's nothing, we don't tell it anything, because what it's going to do is give us an array of all the inputs that have data in them. So we don't have to tell it anything, so it takes no arguments, but it does have a return. It returns an array. So we would have said var the inputs equals pbs.inputs. So there's an equal sign there, so there's something coming back out of pbs.inputs. Okay. I think I'm with you. Okay. And then we also have functions which do both. An example of that is pbs.input without the s, because it expects you to tell it whether you want input one, two, or three, as we learned about oh, right, many right, moons right. ago before you went turtle diving. <laughs> and it also gives an output because we would have said var x equals pbs.input one. So one was the argument saying I want the first input, and then it was popped into a variable because there's an equal sign there. Right, right. Okay. So there's a function that takes an argument and returns a value. So we've been playing with these already. And not only have we been playing with functions that I wrote, We've also been using built-in functions that come with JavaScript. Parseint, that's a function. Parse double. Actually, it's called parse float. I must fix that typo. There's no such thing as a double in JavaScript. I'll have to fix that. Is nan, string, boolean. They're all functions we've used so far. And there probably are more. I just, I, I just didn't remember them. <laughs> so we have idea. been doing this. Hmm? I, I get the idea, I said. Okay. So we've been doing this, but of course the real power is not in using other people's functions, which again is useful, but the real power is in creating your own, because that's, you know the way I, I keep saying that you should build up code slowly? Well, a unit for, these build, for this kind of building up stuff slowly is to take some of the problem you want to solve and create a function that solves that piece, and then test that function, give it some inputs, check the outputs, and make sure that that function is doing what its name says it should. And then you can just leave that aside. And then for the rest of the work you're doing, that whole concept is just become a name. And you can just use it and you know it works because you've checked it out. And then you might start work on another part of your larger project and you make it as another function. And then you have these functions calling each other and all that kind of thing. So once you've done it, you've created the function, you've tested that it works, you can then mentally just put that aside. And that whole problem has now been solved. I now know how to find the 
I don't know, some sort of strange median of 50,000 numbers or something, whatever it is you've solved, you just encapsulate it in a function, give it a name, and then you don't care how it works anymore. You just say, ah, okay, so it expects these arguments and it gives me this output. Great. So I complained last week that I am not getting to do any homework on this, and so it's Mm -hmm. harder for me to keep track of things like syntax. But what I did discover this week is that what is syncing in is the 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 conceptual stuff you've been teaching and the listeners won't have heard it yet but I'll be talking on the on the Nocellacast about how I read read quote unquote watched <laughs> David Sparks video tutorial on Hazel and uh, his video field guide and how he he taught how to build up these little rules that allow you to scan in in pieces of paper and mm-hmm. have it follow these rules to look at data that's inside and parse out that information. And, and I found it was really valuable to take them a little bit at a time. You know, run this yeah. piece that says, can I find a date? If uh, Can I find a date in this format? Am I, am I grabbing the right date that's in this document? And, and building those up a little piece at a time, running a test, a little piece at a time, running a test. And it was something yeah. very familiar to the stuff that you've been teaching us. Yeah, because that is programming. Hazel is a particularly visual programming language, and it's a very stripped-down programming language. It doesn't, it's not but a guess, general purpose programming Guess what language, it can do, it, Bart? It can take JavaScript programs. Well, there you go then. Or Apple JavaScript script. is up and coming, like really up and coming. Um, it was I was reading something about that. There's a there's a sort of a a league table of programming languages, and JavaScript is at number seven, which wow. is pretty darn good. Wow. Yeah. So we're so it, it is a hip and hop right language. Now. But but I do yeah. like that what you're teaching isn't just how to do JavaScript; it's how to program. But yes, here we're going to use JavaScript in our example. Yes. Now. The other advantage of learning about functions today is that from here on out, I am going to set you little challenges to do. Well, not oh, just good. you, every, everyone who'd like to. But these challenges are generally going to take the form of write a function to do. Mm. Because a function is a nice little unit, and then you can use that function to make sure it works like you think. So give it some inputs, see if it outputs what you thought it should. So the function is a nice little atomic unit to work with. Okay, well, this so, will be 15 weeks in before I start typing by myself, so I'm going to have to go back to step I, one. You've been playing with the HTML. It's not 15 weeks okay, in. Okay, okay. I've been playing with the CSS. You, you were doing flex boxes all by yourself. I did once, yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Okay. So all right, so like four. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, since we started JavaScript, yeah. Which is, all right. Well, we had to lay some foundations, right? Yeah. Okay, so the keyword to create a function in JavaScript is function, which is very nice of JavaScript to pick such a sensible for word. Once. So the syntax for creating a function or one of the syntaxes, we'll learn about a different one next week, but let's not confuse things. So we say function space, and then we make up a name. And the rules for the name are exactly the same as the rules for names we learned in installment 12 for variables. So basically stick to your your, your alphanumerics, basically, in your grand. Okay. Uh, then we open a roundy bracket, and in there we optionally list, we optionally name the arguments we're expecting so that we can reference them inside the code. So we're basically going to, say we're creating a function to multiply two numbers together. You might say function space mul, short for multiply, open round bracket n1 comma n2. So number one will be number one and number two. And then inside your code, you'd say n1 plus n2 or something like that. So it's the can name say, you're going to use inside the function. Can we say function name paren uh, divide 
hypotenuse or opposite comma hypotenuse? Sure. If, yeah, if you want to name them like that, absolutely. Yeah, it's up to you. So these names are only going to exist within the function and they're there for you to have a nice sane way of realizing. So the first argument is going to be what and the second argument is going to be what? Name them. Okay. And then you're not left scratching your head. Okay. So the next thing that happens after your argument list, which may be empty, so you could have, you know, for the creation of something like uh, PBS at inputs, there's nothing in the argument list because it takes no arguments. So it's just, you know, close that straight off. Then you open a curly bracket. Then you put in as many statements as you like, and then you close a curly bracket. Now, the variable names you create in that argument list come into being at the start of that curly bracket and vanish out of existence when that curly bracket oh. closes. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Interesting and vitally important. It means that you don't have to worry about colliding with names of things. Oh, that's right? kind of because scary, though. So no, if it wasn't, it would opposite be Opposite and, and uh, hypotenuse someplace else, and they wouldn't know anything about what they were before. Right, they would, ha they would be a different opposite and hypotenuse. Huh, okay. That's really important, and we're going to look at that in much more detail later on. A very, very important concept. It's called scope. So those variables come into being and then leave the scene. So they have a limited scope. Very important. Another very important keyword is the keyword return, which is our mechanism for throwing a value back as an answer. So we would say return four or return X, where X would be a variable we'd used. Okay. Uh, as soon as you meet a return, as soon as the execution of the code meets a return, it returns there and then. And if there was another thousand lines of code inside the function, they will be skipped. Okay. Which sounds like a bad thing, but it actually means that error checking and stuff becomes way easier because instead of saying if this, else, if this, else, if this, you're going to say if this, return. If this, return. If this, return. And so your error checking code becomes much nicer because of the fact that return just short circuits the rest of the function and just leaves. Okay, sir. You found an answer. That's great. I won't bother with any of the rest of this code. Huh. And so we'll see that in our examples. It so sounds you, inefficient, but then I'm looking at what you've written. I'm cheating. I'm looking yeah. ahead that the audience can't see, uh, but it, it isn't inefficient. It looks good. It isn't inefficient. It's really nice. It makes for much more pleasant code. So a lot of the stuff we've been doing up until now, I have been gritting my teeth with all these if-elses because that's not how I would write it normally. I would normally create a function and just return when I was cranky instead of having if this, else that. <laughs> sort of like when you're given a giant form to, to fill out and the first question is, if you've never left the country in 10 years, then go to step 72 and you're like, yes, not traveling, yeah. help me. <laughs> you're excited you skipped all those steps. Yeah. Oh, we had the census recently, so I got my fill of that. <laughs> if you are a single or married, go to page 42. Otherwise, go to... Ah, anyway. <laughs> So let's just get stuck in and let's just do a function. The function we are going to do is to calculate the factorial of a number. Okay. Can I, uh, can so I, I try and prove that I do is... remember what factorial is? Okay. Do you want to explain it then? Yeah. Uh, the factorial of a number is the number times the number one smaller than it times the one smaller than that times the one smaller than that. So the factorial of five is five times four times three times two times one. And you stop at one. Right. Ah. That's a very important thing. We're programmers, right? <laughs> yeah. You got to tell it to, to stop. End. Right. Okay. It's, you ever heard the joke about the programmer found dead in the shower? No. It said lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> It's 
fabulous. I'm going to use mm-hmm. that today. <laughs> Good. And there you'll never do an infinite loop again because you'll think of the, the programmer in the share. Lather and repeat. That poor woman dying in there. Dude. That's great. Okay. Okay. So let's look at our... Actually, before we do anything else, let's copy and paste that code in and run it just to satisfy ourselves that it works. I think that works better. Okay. So we copy and paste all that code, but don't worry. It's just for now, it's just garbage, but we'll explain it all in a moment. So as per usual, if we run it with no inputs, it will tell us enter at least one input to calculate one or more factorials. So let's put in, don't put in a big number because the factorial gets awfully big. Yeah, five is good. Okay. So it says the factorial of five is 120, which is five times four times three times two times one. Right. So how does that work? Well, let's have a look at the code. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to define a f- the factorial function. And then later in the code, we're going to use that function to calculate the factorials of the inputs. So function, factorial, open bracket, n, close bracket. So we are saying we are creating a function. Yeah, roundy brackets or parentheses, whatever. Yeah. whatever roundy brackets. I, th- I think of brackets as the square ones. Oh, okay. I think of them as square brackets. Oh, okay. But for right. me, the default shape of brackets is round. Okay. And then there's curly ones and square ones. Okay. Yeah, okay. So ra- roundy ones. <laughs> okay. Roundy ones. So we are saying there will be one argument and we are going to call it n. So between the curly bracket that comes next and the end of the function, n will exist and n will be whatever is handed to that function as the first argument. Okay. So the first thing we're going to do is convert n to an integer because factorial is an integer thing. So we say n equals parse int n. So we are using a function there. We're using a built-in standard Java function, in fact, to convert n to a number, just to be absolutely sure. Because if someone says the factorial of boogers, well, let's convert it to a number, which will give us nan. So the next thing, the next line is validate n to make sure we're not being asked to do something stupid. And parse int again, if you put in a, a, a extra decimal like 5.1, it just mm-hmm. chops off the uh, the decimal places. Yes. It doesn't round. It just chops it off. Just goes chop. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, as I, far as here, this makes sense. From here on in, this makes no sense. <laughs> it just ceases. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we have parsens it. So the next thing we do is we make sure that n has a sane value. So the first thing we say is if is nan n using another function, a built-in mm-hmm. one again, or so pipe pipe, n is less than one. Because in ah. both of those cases we have a nonsense question. You can't get the factorial of minus one. Ah. Okay. Okay, so we are now certain that we have an integer because we parse inst it, parse inted it. We're certain that it really was a number because it's no longer nan. And we're certain that it's positive. So we have sanity. Now, if we have insanity, what should we do? Well, the most sensible thing for a mathematical function to do if it meets nonsense is to return nan. That's how everything in JavaScript works. So let's just follow the convention. So if that condition is true, return nan. So in other words, if there's garbage, the execution of the function stops here. We just throw our hands up there and go, no idea what you're talking about. Not Uh, a number. And that's because we have that final... Uh, yeah, because we the have return, a return already. Oh, already hit it. Okay. Yeah. So if is nan n or n is less than one, return nan. Goodbye. We're out of here. Okay. Otherwise, we have some mathematics to do. So the next line is do calculation. So because we're dealing with multiplication, we're going to do the same trick we did before, where we're going to start by assuming an answer of one and then looping as far as we need to go by multiplying, 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 multiplying. 
For some so reason, far, that really bothers me. <laughs> I, I, I understand it makes complete sense to start at the bottom and go up until you hit the number that was the input. Well, actually, no. Look at our you... no. Look at our loop. It's not. Okay. We are we are doing it the way the human brain works. We're okay, looping good. backwards. Okay. We're minus minusing. But we got to start somewhere. So we started one because anything multiplied by one is that anything. So we can't start. We can't say ants equals zero and then go multiply because then the answer will always be zero. So we say ants equals one. That's a neutral number for multiplications. Okay. So we say our answer is one, and then we're going to a for loop. So four of our i equals n. So in other words, start at the number we were given. So start at five or four or whatever whatever was typed in. Our condition is that i must be greater than one. So in other words, we're going to stop when we get to one. Okay. And we say i minus minus. Okay, I'm I'm lost again, um, okay. and I'm lost where you wouldn't think I should be lost. Okay. So you had var ants equals one. Ants yes. is a variable? Yes, we have okay. created a variable called ants. Okay, but then right away you say for var i. Yes, we created another variable called i. Okay, so that is creating a variable there. Okay, yes. it, it got confusing because it was for many, many variables. Roundy bracket var i. Okay, but I just want to make sure that was another variable that yes. we haven't yet defined. So you say well, we define it there, var i. So right. As soon as we hit var, boink, variable okay. comes into being. So, so var is for the variable. variable i equal to n. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started at n, which is the number that was passed in. It's our, it's our argument, n. Then we check it against 1. Yeah, so, so if we're not greater than 1, we're done, right? So multiplying by 1 is pointless. So there's no point in saying greater than or equal to 1. So... The last one we have to multiply is two. Why? Why do we have to create a variable when we? Oh, because n is not a variable. Variable is an input. Well, uh, we could. We, you're right. We could get away with one less. But Alistair told me not to make too many jumps at once. We could manipulate n. Okay. Okay, but so we in, could loop through n. In this case, we're saying let's let's make n is the input i is going to be the variable we're going to assign to n to start with and then we're going to change i up until it gets to n until it gets to one gets to one right because we're going backwards okay yeah so we're going backwards so i minus minus in the end so So again with our our i equals n Mm -hmm. i greater than one Mm -hmm. that's a test right it is a test yeah and then subtract one from it so remember the way it goes is increment statement happens once. So var i equals n happens exactly once. So that's our initialization. Then we check the condition. Then we do what's inside the loop. Then we increment. Then we check. Then we do. Then we increment. Then we check. Then we do. Then we increment. Then we check. Then we do. So that's that's the way the for loops work, which we learned last time, which you found confusing because the i minus minus is the last thing to happen before the cycle starts again, even though it's on the first line. And you're right to find that confusing, but it's for a really good reason. It's because yeah, I still I, can't read this and have it make any sense to me. I, I believe you and I understand conceptually, but I would it doesn't make any sense to me the way it's written at all. I, I feel like I is going to be negative one immediately. Right. That's what I'm saying. So if you number the slots, so we call the first thing up to the first semicolon one, then the next thing two, the next thing three, and the last and then everything inside the loop four, it goes one, two, four, three. Two four three, And the reason for that, it is counterintuitive, except for the fact that it forces everything to do with i's updating to be together. So you can see that i is going in the range n to 2, and it's going down. Okay, let me see if I can say it. 
So I'm going to skip the I minus minus when I talk. I'm going to say we're setting mm-hmm. the variable I equal to N. And yep. so I is our, our input. And for I greater than one. Right. Okay, so so for N greater than one. No, for gonna, I greater than one. Right, I, we're, but we're I changing is N. I. No, it isn't. No, 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 no. Well, okay, it has the same value initially once. At this yeah, point. Okay. At this point at this, you're right. Okay. At this I point, has the is, value yeah, of N. Okay. Yeah. So I put in five. I yes. as n i becomes five. Yes, we check to see if it's greater than one. Five is greater than one. Therefore, mm-hmm. we're going to take our answer is uh, times equals i. I don't know what's getting times equal times i. Okay, so answer is equal to the answer multiplied by i. But we don't have. What are we multiplying? The answer times we started I? at one, right? Because that way. Oh, oh, oh! That's right. We declared it as one. Okay, so now I've taken five times one. Yes. So now I'm gonna I'm gonna go back up and pick up position three, which was i minus minus. So five yes. becomes four. Yes. Uh, Is four greater than one? F- I so i becomes four. So okay. So then we check. So the answer again. at this point. The no. answer at this point is five. So var ans contains five, but we're checking if i is greater than one. So i we've made four. Right. So it's still. So true. now we're saying yeah. So now we're saying five times f- five times four. So five four is is twenty. Where did so the five 20? come from? I because is four. ants contains five. Ants contains five. How did ants I get five? Four. Because we were, uh, the first time through the loop, we multiplied by five. Right? You just said that like thirty seconds ago. Yeah, but. I believe so we started you... ants at one. Okay, no, we still so we step through it. So we started ants at one. Then we went create i and make it be five. Is five greater than one? Yes, it is. Uh, answer becomes answer times five. So what's one times five? It's yeah, five. So going. answer becomes five. So from now on, answer is five. Then we go i minus minus. So i becomes four. Is 4 greater than 1? Yes. So answer, which is 5, now gets multiplied by i, which is 4. So now it become, answer becomes 5 times 4, which is 20. i then goes to 3. Is 3 greater than 1? Yes, it is. 20 times 3 is 60. So i yeah, becomes... That, that last piece of it each time just slips right off my cracker. Uh, I... I understand I understand what we're trying to do, Bart. That isn't the question at all. So I'm not trying to follow I'm not having trouble following the logic. Syntactically, I'm seeing mm-hmm. ants times equals i and mm-hmm. so i at this point in the plot is 4, it's 3, whatever it is. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not seeing ants turn into that number. Okay. So Cuz we re- never say how... turn this into ants. But we do because remember that the way uh... Who was that really good listener who gave us that fantastic advice? We should just keep her name on the tip of our tongues. Keep the name, her name on the tip of because it was superb advice. So answer becomes, so star equals you read as answer becomes answer times I. Oh, see, it doesn't say that. It should it say does. That's what star equals is. Yeah, okay. That's it. That's the missing piece. What okay. is her name? I was gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very sorry, dear listener, because your your email was superb. With any luck, I'll find it while we're talking. <laughs> good, yes. Okay. Deserve credit for being so good. Okay. 
So every time we go around the loop, we're, we're, we're multiplying in another number and we keep multiplying them in until we get to the bottom. So 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1 or 6 times 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1. And then at the end of it, answer contains or answer contains. Jill. Jill, thank Jill you. Romansky. Thank you, Jill. So at the end, the last thing we do here is say return Hans. I follow that line. Yes. So now we can say... So now we can call this function on every single input. So we did our test earlier by putting in one number, five, but put into input two, seven, and put into input three, eight. They'll get big numbers. And now hit run, and you'll see it does it for all three numbers. Yes? I'm pushing it. I'm waiting. 126 and 40,320. Yeah. Big numbers. This is why you shouldn't put in like 64 into the factorial function. <laughs> it's very exponential. Right, right, right. Okay. So what we are doing is we are calling the function we've just created once for every input. So there's a loop involved because we're doing it multiple times. Yes? I believe you because that's what the answer did, not because I can okay. read the code. But the only way to do the same thing many times is to loop it. Right. right. So... There's going to if you if you see me something being repeated, there's a loop somewhere. That's what they're for. So, the first thing we do is we 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 get our raw inputs using the function I created as part of the sandbox called PBS dot inputs. So we say var raw inputs equals PBS dot inputs. So that will have gone to the HTML document, found those three text areas, saw what values was in them, assembled those values into an array, and returned that array and popped it into raw inputs. So we know raw inputs is an array. What we have no idea of whether it's 0, 1, 2, or 3 long. How do you know it's an array? It... Because I wrote the function that way. I guarantee you in the documentation that PBS at inputs will always return an array. Okay. That is okay. just It's not something spec. I can see by the code. It's because it is it, not. It's, it's a truth. Okay. It's a truth. And this okay. is why documentation is so important. Because the only way you know what parseInt does is because the documentation tells you it will return a number, either nan or an integer. Okay. So, you know, so these functions, they do, you have to trust that the developer who wrote them and who wrote the documentation is correct. And of course, one way to test it is to give it lots of inputs and see what comes out, and then you'll very soon see whether you believe them or not. But anyway, so you do have to take what a function does on, not on faith, but on the documentation, which is why, why I keep saying document things. Very important. Okay. So we have an if statement then. We say if raw inputs.length. So raw inputs.length is going to return. I forget the length where of did the array. raw inputs.length come from. Okay, so raw inputs came from PBS that inputs. It is an array. That. All arrays it's have... the dot length part. I don't know what that is. Okay. So like we learned last time, you can get the length of an array by saying its name dot length. There you go. Okay. Got it. Okay. So that will be a number. That number will be zero if the array is empty or not zero otherwise. So the truthiness of a number, if it's not zero, is going to be true. So in other words, if there are some numbers to work on, we go into this if statement. Otherwise, we go to the else. And the else just says, enter at least one input to calculate one or more factorials. So we're doing our whole being friendly to humans thing here. Okay. If we got something, do the mathematics. Otherwise, say what we'd like. Yeah? Yes. Okay. And then we go into the for loop where we say var i equals zero. i is less than raw inputs.length. In other words, we loop through the length of the array. i plus plus. That's a very traditional for loop there. Start at zero, go to less than the length, and go up one every time. 
So we're but just, we don't go up until we do the thing after it. Correct. So we, we do it on the zeroth element, and then we do it on the first element, and then we do it on the second element until we run out of elements. But this, so we want so, to do the zeroth. So this time there's nothing... Um, okay. Before we had um, the, the four piece on one line, mm-hmm. and then when you had the squiggly brackets, and we had the, the function that you were going to apply against it, that ants times equals one. So mm-hmm. uh, answer becomes answer, or becomes answer times one. Okay, but we do have something in here. We have a PBS that say. Yeah, so it seems it would it would say and say and say and say. Right, but I is getting plus plus, so I will only as long as there are things in the input, right? But this says for for I equal Equal to zero. zero. Yes. Then I less than raw inputs dot length, so zero is less than one. Then Mm -hmm. say the factorial is, and there is no factorial if var I equals zero. Ah, but there is. Oh, because zero Cause, is the first position. Ah, yes. Dang it. Thought I'd there figured something out. Okay. It's that level of indirection, right? We're putting the I into the square brackets to say, give me the input at zero. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot zero is the first position. Zero is the first position because computer scientists are odd. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, no, I'm glad I was confused because then I, and that I figured yeah. out why myself. Okay. Exactly. This is how it should be. So, All right. We're going to say raw inputs i. So in other words, print out the number. So if you look at our outputs, it says 5 factorial is. So we print out the number first. Plus, so we're going to concatenate the string factorial is. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to concatenate on the result of our factorial. So we give the name of our function. We open a bracket. We pop in what it is we want to get the factorial of. And then we close our brackets. Yeah. So you're reusing factorial, which is a function we def- defined in the top half, yeah. and using it in this calculation. Yeah, okay. and we're using it one, two, three times, depending on how many numbers people put in. I understand all of this. And if you sat me alone in a room with a sheet of paper and said, write that out, I'd never come out <laughs> if that was a requirement. I don't think you'd never come out. I think you'd start with the documentation for a function, and you'd say, okay, I need to create a function. So function name open bracket arguments run it okay great yeah, it's that remembering worked. there's squirrely brackets and commas right. and semicolons my show notes show you uh, they always show you the form right my, yeah. my show notes always show you the form so what you would do is you would go okay so now i need a for loop what did a for loop look like again scroll ah okay okay for so it's okay bracket. to cheat and look back at, at it's the not examples cheating. that's oh. not cheating okay because I thought it might be. I thought I'm supposed to be able to do this no, off the top of my head. No, no, okay. No, 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 no. Okay. okay. I feel better yeah, about at myself. At university <laughs> level, I were almost no such thing as open book exams. There was one exception, programming. <sighs> okay. <laughs> they wanted us to learn the concepts. They didn't want us to learn off APIs and stuff. They wanted us to be able to find out what the Java function is for converting a number to an integer. They didn't want us to just know. So it's okay to look at documentation. It's okay to look at the specs. That is fine. I feel better. Good. Okay, now we need to have more of a serious conversation about this thing scope I mentioned because variable names are vitally important. And we need to revisit our very good friend var, which I I told you was important. And now it's going to become really clear why that is. Okay, so a scope is just a namespace for variables, right? It's just... A scope contains all the possible names for variables, and that's just what it is. It's a namespace, right? Okay. There is a global scope. 
And everything we did before today was in the global scope. So when we declared a variable, in fact, here in our example above, var raw inputs equals pbs.inputs, that is not inside a function. That is just sitting there on its own. That is global. Makes sense. Okay. And up until now, everything has been global. But if you use the var keyword inside a function, like we do, say, on line uh, 13, that var statement is inside the function factorial. So that's global. It's not global. It is scoped to that function. So in other words, ants comes into being at line 13, and it ceases to be at the end of that function on line 20. Which is good. Yeah. Very good. But easy to get confused if you didn't think about that. Right. But this is why tabbing in is so important. Right? Because ANS has created one tabbed in, and it exists until we stop being one tabbed in. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And scope is vital, because if there wasn't scope, you would, you would be forever, right? Then you would have to care about every function's internal structure. Because if you use the same variable that I used in PBS.input or something, then your variable would muck with my variable and it would be oh, chaos. I was just having chaos. trouble imagining myself keeping track of my variables, but I didn't even think about keeping track of somebody else's. Right. And you want a function to be a black box. You do, all you need to know about a function is what should come in and what should come out. And everything else should be completely irrelevant to you as a programmer. And that's only possible because the scope is, is limited to the, to the function, right? So the function is a little universe of its own. Now, the function can reach out to global variables, but anything created inside it stays inside it. Oh, okay, okay. But if it's, okay. so if it's var open roundy bracket something, that is, the scope is inside that, that uh, function. Yeah. But if it calls the, out a variable that exists normally or outside... Yeah. So the, the way it actually works, when you say ants, what JavaScript does is says, is there an ants in the function I'm currently in? Yes, I'll use that one. If the answer were no, it would then go up a level. Oh, it's- oh, I see what you're saying. So you can define a variable outside of that. Like, let's say we're going to have um, ants is going to mean something in this giant program. Everybody's mm-hmm. going to use ants the same. Then yes. this little function doesn't have to define it separately. Yes, and it will share that same global variable with everyone else. Because it's global. Okay. So it's the same one. You gotta be careful when you create those. You do, which is why there's a habit that programmers get into that when they create a global variable, they they name it in all caps. It's just a habit to help you spot when you're being global and when you're being local. Again, it's it's not a rule, it's a convention, it's a habit. Yeah, because that could still get screwed up where I could say, okay, I am the queen of this giant piece of code we're all writing as a team, Mm -hmm. and I've declared that ants is a variable, and then Bart goes off and defines ants as something else. Inside your function, it's going to take precedence. But only inside my function. Yeah, you won't break anybody else, but God knows what you're going to do if you, you might think you're calling my ants, but you defined your own, you can get all messed up. Yeah, well, that's me being a bad programmer. That's okay. okay. My damage is confined to Can't my little. You're such a screw up, Bart. Jeez, why do you do that? <laughs> Trust me, everyone gets their scope wrong from time to time. Okay. Now, something that we're not going to do this week because it will make your head explode. We are going to do it next week because it's really, really important for how JavaScript talks to the web browser. Is you can create another function inside a function. 
Uh-huh. And then you create a function inside that function. Okay. And the scopes are like Matroska dolls. So if you look for ants, it will start in the one that it's in and then ask the function outside it and ask the function outside it and ask the function outside it until it gets to global. And if it never finds an answer, it will give you undefined. And if it does find an answer, it will tell you what it is straight away. So that the scopes are nested one inside the other. Hmm. It's it's hard to it, it just put a pin in it because when you see it in action, it will make a lot more sense. Yeah, this is not going confusing to... at all to me. This seems to make oh, good. complete sure. sense till okay, I try good. to type it. <laughs> right? No, no, no. This makes complete sense to you because you don't have the baggage of having learned a language like C. This aspect of JavaScript makes most people's heads explode if they've written in other languages. Really? Yes. Yeah, so you're coming at this clean, and it's a help. Okay. Don't tell me how the other people do it. I don't want to no, know. I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. So let us play around with this concept of scope. Okay. So I am going to declare a function called dummy function. And I'm going to make use of an X, a variable called X. And I'm only going to use it in my little dummy function. And then later on in the code, I'm going to create a global variable called x. And what you'll see is that they do not mess with each other because the local one takes preference inside the function and the global one exists outside the function. So if you take that, so if you see the code there, we start off on line two and we say function dummy function var x equals five. And then I have a comment there to make it clear what I mean. Only exists within this function. (laughs) Okay. Then I have a pbs.say x inside dummy function has the value whatever, which will, of course, be 5. So below that, I declare a globally scoped variable called x, and I say var x equals 6. So it has global scope there on line 8. Okay. Okay. That is a different x to the one on line 3. That's important. So then we have a PBS that says says, x in the global scope has the value x, which will be 6. Then we call our function, which means it will call the code defined above, It'll make a local X, give it the value 5, print it out, and then that local X will vanish into the ether from which it came. So, And then later we say X star equals 2. In other words, we're going to double the global X. And then we have a PBS that say X in the global scope has doubled 2. And then we call the dummy function again. And what you would expect to see is X in the global scope has the value 6. Then it says X in the dummy function has the value 5. Then x in the global scope has been doubled to 12, followed by x in the local, x in dummy function has the value 5. Because we never ever touched it inside the dummy function. We we never used dummy function. We didn't double it. Right. Dummy function has its own copy of x that has nothing to do with the one in the global scope. So what we did outside the function has no effect inside the function. Yeah, so one, if you run that, you'll see that. The one thing that, that surprises me from when it runs, the math and the logic don't bother me at all. What surprises me is the order of the um, of the pbs.say. So okay. you've got the dummy function at the very top, and you say pbs yeah. say x inside dummy function has a value of x. And that is not the first thing that got typed. It's the one right. outside of the dummy, the function that got typed first. Okay, so what I'm doing on line two is I am creating a function. I'm not running a function, I'm just creating it. But you do a PBSA inside it. Okay, right, but that code doesn't run, right? Dummy function Uh, is created and it is given this content, but it doesn't execute. Why not? It says PBS.say. 
Okay, but it, it will execute the moment you call dummy function. So that code will execute when you get to line 12. That actually oh, says, oh, do I'm dummy sorry. Function. Part of the function is to say something and you haven't said function be go. <laughs> exactly. So what, between lines two and five, we're creating the function, but not running it. We're just saying what it is. And then mm-hmm. on line 12, we say go. And then on line 19, we say go again. Okay. And the way you make a function go is to just simply say its name? Give it its name and give it the arguments it needs. So okay. you create a function by saying function and then its name, and you use it by just saying its name. Okay. So the magic word function is to say create one, and then when you just use it, you just say its name. Just invoke. Okay. It's called and invoking. In the global right? scope, you don't have to tell it. You are telling it to go. Uh, like your yeah, PBS, so, so, I'd say you're not, in the, you're not in the process of creating a function. Right. So on line 12, we say, do whatever it is that is dummy function, which is lines three and four. And then on line 19, we say, do it again. So lines three and four run again, because we're reusing code. We've packaged up this code and given it a name, and now we can just make it go at will. You know what bothers me is that the the function has a global scope. I mean, it exists elsewhere. It exists everywhere. But the the variable that you created inside of it only exists while you're talking directly to that function. Well, that function is executing, to be specific. Uh, well, no, because so at the beginning, you said, wait, wait, let me finish. A. Let me finish. Okay. I, if I don't get it out, I don't get to understand. You said okay. at the beginning on lines two through four, we say function dummy mm-hmm. uh, function. We have PBSA. You said we're not executing the function. Right. We're not. We're just saying that these, these lines of code are what you do, but they don't run. They're just, we're just telling it what, what it will do when it is run. Okay. That's... Sounded like the opposite of what you just said to me. Okay, but when we get to line 12, then we're saying do it. So when we get to line 12, a variable called x is created in that instance. That variable gets printed, and then that variable gets destroyed. Then on line 19, a whole new x gets created. It exists for one line, gets printed out, and then it too vanishes. And if we were to call dummy function again, a whole new x would be created. So... Hmm. These variables exist when the function runs and they cease to exist when the function exits. Okay. They're very ephemeral. Right. So they're not executing when the function is created, only when you say it. Yes. When you invoke is the technical term. So it is a bit like, you know, evil spirits or whatever. We're defining what our magic spell is. And then when we say dummy function, we're saying expelliarmus or whatever. (laughs) Not sure that analogy helps, but as I say, not enough sleep today. (laughs) Okay. I think I've got it. Okay, so our f- a fresh five comes into being at lines 12 and 19, which is why what we do outside with our other X has no bearing on it. Just we, we start from scratch. A whole new X gets created. It does its thing and then it goes away. A whole new X gets created, it does its thing and then it runs away. So sometimes you may want to reach the global space, uh, the global scope from inside a function. So let's have an example of that in action. So I am declaring here on line one, it says declare a globally scoped accumulator. VAR, ACCUMULATOR, in all caps, equals 1. Okay. Then we're going to declare a function which doubles the accumulator each time the function is called. So function means we are defining what it will do. We're not running it. We're going to say what it is it will do. Function, double accumulator, seems like a good name for a function that doubles the accumulator. It doesn't need any arguments because it's going to work on this global variable that exists anyway, so we no arguments. PBS.say, doubling the value of the, in the global accumulator. 
And then we say accumulator becomes equal to accumulator times two. Right. Thank you, Jill. Uh, okay. So now we actually have our real code that's doing something below that. We say pbs.say the value of the globally scoped accumulator is now, and then we concatenate on the accumulator. So what would it be at that point in time The first, when we get to line 11? Um, it's still one. It hasn't been doubled yes. yet because we didn't Correct. run the function. We just created the function. Perfect. Okay. On line 12, we create a little for loop that just goes, that just runs five times, right? Var i equals zero, i is less than five, i plus plus. And we never use i again, right? i's only function is to make sure we, this happens five times and not infinity times, because infinity would be too many. Right. So we say double accumulator. So we invoke our function. And then we say pbs.say the value of the globally scoped accumulator is now concatenate on the accumulator. So what you should see is one getting doubled five times. So two, four, six, eight. No, that's not how you double. Two, four, eight, 16, 32. That makes much more sense. <laughs> okay, hang on, hang on. Hold, okay. hold. Hmm. So at the very beginning, our accumulator mm-hmm. has a value of one. Yes. And then, but it seems to me, mm-hmm. how does it ever stay one? It seems to me the first thing we do is we double it. Right. It doesn't stay one. Well, the first thing we spit out is one. Okay. The first thing we spit out is coming from line 11, which is before the loop. Hang so on. before we've done anything, line 11, we Let haven't... Let me get my line numbers back. Uh, so line number 11 says, pbs.say, the value of this globally scoped accumulator is now, and the, okay. and we run the doubling we right haven't. away. No, well, no, because... So line 2 creates the accumulator, lines 4 to 8 create the function, but do not run it, and then right. the next line is the say. So nothing has run yet when we get to the say. Which is why it's still one, right? Oh, you know what the problem is, Bart? Is again the width of your uh, of your website. I saw the value of the globally scoped accumulator is now, and then immediately you start running the doubling. You have the uh, for loop, but I can't see the the rest of the function or the PBS that say which says say the word say whatever's in accumulator. Can I give you a little hint? What I've been doing while all of this describing is I've been putting it into the playground, running it. Yeah. There I can um, see it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it makes a lot more sense when you can see the whole sentence. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So, and if you run it, you'll see the six six print statements. So the first thing it says is the value of the globally scoped accumulator is now one, which is coming from line 11. Then we call our double function. So it says doubling the value of the global accumulator. And then we have our print statement that simply says the value is now two. And then we do that again four more times. So it goes two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two. Great. Okay, that was pretty easy. Okay, you but you see, see that we, <laughs> yeah. So we interacted with a globally scoped variable inside a function. Yeah, and Makes I sense. followed the convention I told you about of naming it in all caps, so that when I'm looking at my function, I can see that I didn't forget to declare accumulator. I really do mean global accumulator. So you're saying whenever you do a globally uh, scoped variable, you make it all caps? Yeah, so that I myself don't do silly things. And that's, not, that a, that's not a BART function? No. That's a everybody, or BART uh, convention? 
that's an everybody convention that that isn't okay it's not everybody everybody but it's a convention that spans multiple languages c programmers would be used to the same way of doing things okay it's a habit that that exists in many many places not every language but many many languages okay some languages force variables to be all caps all the time so they obviously don't get to play along here Hmm. and the reason you do that right because if i didn't have that in all caps how could i tell six months from now whether I forgot to type var by mistake or whether I really did mean a global variable. If it was not in all caps, I would be double guessing, my, second guessing myself. Okay. Is that a typo? Because a very it's common... Neat that through some little convention you can help yourself that way. I get it. Yeah, and programming is full of these because a very common type of bug, and it's the kind of bug that makes your little brain explode. If you forget to use the word var inside a function and just use a variable, without meaning to, you're reaching into the global scope. And you might do something in the global scope to mess with that variable. And you suddenly have spooky action at a distance, as Einstein would say. <laughs> right? Because this function that you had no idea was going to muck with the global scope has just mucked with the global scope. And tracking that down is such a nightmare. So that's why it's important to say, okay, so say to myself, if there's a variable here that isn't in uppercase, I should have used var. Did I use var? No. Oopsie daisies, my bad. Oh, it is in all caps. Ah, okay. I really did mean to reach out. So again, it's all about Unless trying to stop yourself. the mistake you made was writing it lowercase inside your, inside your function. <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as a perfectly bug-proof code, as we all know. Right, right. <laughs> it keeps getting full of bugs. But you can do little things to lessen the chances. Now, I want to stress really carefully that what I am about to do now is optional. Some people's brains think like this, and this is easy. Some people's brains think this is magic, and it will never sink in. So half the audience will go, oh, great, cool. And the other half will go, what the who the hua? No, is it a, if you're is the it second a leading half, indicator that the level at which I often get lost leads you to believe that I'm going to have trouble with this? No. Or is it just no, whether I'm, you're wired is, right or left? Yeah, it really is how the brain is wired. What type of abstraction does your brain like and what type of abstraction does your brain like tilt at? Like the old slot machines. There you go. Okay. So it is, and it is not a value judgment, right? It is some people think recursively and some people think iteratively. And this will either click or clunk, right? <laughs> and if it clunks, do not panic. It is normal. You, you are with probably 70% of the population. But if it clicks, this is such a cool way of writing really nice code. And in certain situations, this is easier than the other way. But it is not required. You can go through a full career as a programmer and never use recursion. Or like me, you can love it and use it all the time. Both are perfectly valid. I, my brain works recursively. So I said to you that every time you call a function, the, a new copy of the variable is created. Yes, I was very careful to say that when we were making our little x inside dummy function. I said, uh, well, the first time we call the function, a new x is created. It exists for a few lines and then it vanishes. And then the next time we call dummy function, a new X is created. Yes? Yeah. So what if I call dummy function from inside dummy function? 
Um, I get two X's. So if I say, okay, well, wait, what, an example. What, 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 <laughs> okay, so I create a X? function called dummy function, and inside dummy function, I invoke dummy function. That's why it's called recursion, right? We're we're into Escher here. Yeah, I'd really like you to tell me because I don't understand the question yet. Okay, well, look at the next example down. On line one, we create a function called factorial. And on line... 15, which is still inside factorial, we invoke factorial. We are calling ourselves inside ourselves. Okay. So what happens? This is self-referential. What happens is, every time you go down the rabbit hole by one, a whole new copy of the scope gets created. So they're independent of each other. You now have a clone of this function running at the same time. And another clone, and another clone, and another clone, as deep down the rabbit hole as you go. Because each one creates its own copy. Which means that the factorial can be described in two sentences. The factorial of 1 is 1. The factorial of n, where n is an integer greater than 1, is n times the factorial of n minus 1. That is, that is the mathematical definition of factorial, and it takes two lines. Yes? Yeah, I... I... That, is, like, that is, I'm just saying, like, that is... No, I know that, that to is... be true. I know that to okay. be true. I understand how factorials work, but... So the code below does it that way, which is why I have comments on lines 9 I and 14. I can't find a second time you define f the function, I though. I don't define it a second time. I define it once, and inside that definition, I invoke myself. Line 15, factorial. I don't recreate factorial. I call factorial. Mm-hmm. So I am inside factorial. There is a second factorial is being We didn't walk through this, so I don't know. We didn't, where so you... let's walk through it, right? Function. Sorry, that factorial. was me banging my head on my microphone because I keep starting questions and then you start talking. Oh, and so sorry. I, maybe it's a Skype lag thing, but if I don't get my question out, I don't understand. So okay. now I don't sorry, remember I, I, what my question is because I stopped to yell at you, so it's happened again. I don't know where sorry, we are. I thought you were yelling at me to explain, so I was explaining. Okay, but I hadn't asked my question yet. <laughs> okay, um, so what I think I was saying, again, is, so you've got, you define the function. Yes. But we didn't walk through defining the function, so I don't understand how we can call it if we haven't defined it yet. So now if we should walk through the function. We should walk through the function. So remember those two rules, that little two-sentence definition of what it means to be a factorial. Because it is self-referential, right? And rule two, we say that the factorial of n is n times the factorial of n minus 1. So you see the way factorial depends on factorial? It's like GNU is not Unix. What does GNU stand for? GNU stands for GNU is not Unix. So the G stands for GNU again? You see You see the way we I have think, this reference I think reference your explanation is, it, can we walk through the code? We can, yeah. So, okay, so we start off, we, we call our function factorial, and we say we'll have one argument, and that argument shall be called n. Okay. We say we create a variable called int n and we have it be assigned the value of parsinting n. So in other words, we're, we're forcing our variable to be an integer. Okay. Yeah. Did you use then a capital we, letter in int n because of global scope or just because that would be camel case except nothing's coming after case. it? It's, it's, a, it's a very stumpy camel. Okay. All right. Then we just deal with nonsense. Just because it's really good practice to deal with nonsense. So we say, if is nan integer n, 
or integer n is less than one. So there's the two possible yeah. types of garbage. Good. Return nan. Got it. So we have an, like an escape valve for you told me complete garbage. That's right. an important escape hatch to have. Right. Then we implement rule one. So rule one says that the factorial of one is one. So we say if int n double equals one return one. So that's another escape hatch that says so if we're one, just return one. So don't even bother trying to run the factorial. Yes. So okay. that actually is really important because that's, that provides a way out before we get to infinity. Now, the implement, line to implement rule two, line 15, this is where the heads explode or not. So we say return int n times the factorial of int n minus one. That is rule two in JavaScript. Int n, but what is int factorial n is, is the, the parse is the is the parse int of n. Mm-hmm. So if n was five point three, mm-hmm. then int mm-hmm. n is five. We're saying times. return five times the factorial of five minus one. So five times uh, four factorial makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. It does make sense, but we're calling the function we're creating inside the function. Yeah. Hoisted by your own petard? Right. Okay, that is recursion. When you call yourself from inside yourself, that is recursion. That is the dictionary definition of recursion. Some people's head explodes, and some people's don't. So let's walk through this with... Let's do it with three, so our heads don't explode too much. Right? So if... We call our new function with three. So we come in, and the moment the function is called, a new version of n is created with the value three. On line two, a new version of int n is created with the value three. It's not, it isn't nan, it is greater than one, so we skip that escape hatch. Three is not equal to one, so we skip that escape hatch. So then we say, we want to return three times the factorial of two. Okay, we now have to calculate the factorial of 2. So at that instance, our whole second copy of this function spawns into memory. So our RAM now contains two instances of the function. And a whole new n is created where n is 2. Can and I stop we you run... for a second? You can. And let me ask the whole question before you start answering. If we don't have to do this recursive thing to get factorial to work because we just proved we could do it without doing this. You're using this as an example just to show you us how recursion works? A, to show you how recursion works, and B, to show you how if your brain works iteratively, if your brain likes loops, then the way we did it first will make sense to you. But if you're, particularly actually if you're a mathematician, you're used to thinking of these things in terms of these two rules above. And so the code we're writing here is much more like the mathematical definition than what we wrote above. So one is a computer science way of approaching it. The other is a mathematical way of approaching it. And we can write the same function either way. So it's just how does your brain work? Which of these two pieces of code will you look at and go, ah, I see. But they both made sense to me. Great. You are in a small minority. <laughs> well, no, that's not true. I mean, no, no, I'm not saying, I, I think had you asked me which one is better, then I would have, a, I would have an opinion. But okay, well, which do you prefer? It, um, and then I said I would have an opinion. <laughs> I don't know, I really hated that first one a lot. 
Right. But so in a way, the second one does make more sense to me. Okay, I would be with you on that. I prefer to do recursive things recursively. Yeah, but it might just be because I don't like the whole syntax of defining a variable, checking its value, then skipping over something in the sentence. And that really is bugging you, isn't it? Yeah, it really is bugging me. But that's something I have to accept as as being a, a real thing. Yeah. Uh, so that has nothing to do with the recursiveness, correct? Well, the iterativeness in that case. The for loop is iterating. Okay. And a recursion is when you call yourself. Oh, okay. Yourself. Oh, okay. So I do like recursion better, better than the iterative. Okay. All uh, right. That puts you in the 30% rather than the 70%, which is fine. I say not a value judgment. It's just different okay. people's brains are wired differently. Yay, I'm part of the 30%, but I don't know if it's top or bottom 30%. It, it just is, right? There's no value judgment. It just is. <laughs> okay. So you, you, you're wired that way. Okay. So before we wrap up for today, before I give you a challenge, I need to teach you one more thing. Uh, so a function takes arguments and gives out a result. And so far, we've just been handing it numbers. Everything I've done has been mathematical, actually. I don't know why. It's just an accident. But that argument doesn't have to be just like a number. It could also be an array. Oh. But when you pass an array, there is a subtlety. And it's not, it's not evil. It's just you need to, it's just it doesn't do what you intuitively expect at first. And I need to highlight that or weird stuff will happen. Okay. And weird stuff is confusing. <laughs> so I'm going to show you it being weird and then I'm going to explain what's going on. So first off, I'm going to do some unweird code. So just some perfectly normal code that behaves like everything else we've done so far. So I've created a very boring function, which I've called doubler, whose role in life is to double whatever is passed to it as an argument. So whatever you give to doubler, you will get back twice that. So x plus equals x, return x. Okay. x is the first argument. So we're going to create a variable called a, and we're going to make it equal to 4, and we're going to print out a. Then we're going to call doubler on a and stick the answer into b, and then we're going to print out a again. All right. And what would you intuitively think should happen? I would intuitively think that a should become 8. Really? Well, you just told me I'm running it through the doubler. Wouldn't 4 turn into 8? Okay, so 4 turns, yes, 4 turns into 8, and the 8 goes into variable b, but a, okay, well, let's know, let's not tell you what happens, let's show you what happens, this is a much better idea. So let's run the code, and then look at the output, and then we'll have a conversation. So we'll run this code, and what comes out? The value of a before being passed to doubler is 4, and the value of a after being passed to doubler is also 4. Well, that's a dumb okay. function, Bart. What good no, is that? because... Well, I didn't bother printing out B because I really only cared about A. So what doubler got and what doubler then doubled was a copy of the value in A. Which is good, right? No spooky action at a distance. No. Yes? How could A be passed to the doubler and not turn into 2A? I don't... Because a copy of A was passed to the doubler. So A contained 4, so 4 was given to the doubler. A copy, photocopy, a Xerox. Okay. So doubler gets handed a Xerox of whatever is in A at the moment. Okay. And then it doubles the Xerox, and then the Xerox vanishes into the ether, never to be seen again. But A is just like you left it, untouched, un, undamaged, unaltered. A is whatever it was. Hmm. Okay, so the, the point here is what is handed over to doubler is a Xerox. We just, 
So A happens to be four, we hand it a four. If A had been six, we would have handed it a six. If A had contained boogers, we would have handed it some boogers. But it's a Xerox, it's a copy. We just, whatever is put in those little roundy brackets, we Xerox it. And then the Xerox is what goes off to the function to be manipulated, tweaked, whatever is done with it. Okay, so that's the takeaway. What goes to a function is a Xerox. Hmm. Assuming people know that Xerox makes photocopiers. I presume they do. Isn't Xerox like Kodak? Uh... It's a verb, right? Yeah. Kleenex okay. is one of those words. Kleenex. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. So we, it, it's a copy. What's sent over is a copy. So, arrays... Oh, well, let's, let's do it and then explain. Do it and then explain. So now let's run our next example, which is a, not a particularly much more exciting piece of code. It's called Array Doubler. Do you want to guess what it does? <laughs> oh, I'm sure A is still going to be A when I'm done, but I don't know why. I'm going to go ahead. Okay. Okay. So array doubler expects to be handed as an argument, an array, and it's going to loop through the array and just double everything in the array. Hmm. And okay. so if we, we're going to say A equals the array one, two, three, because I just like the array one, two, three. It's not a very interesting array, but there we go. So we're going to say the value of A before we pass it into array doubler is, and then we print out A, and then we call array doubler A, and then we print out the value of A again. And what you're expecting to happen well, no, no, I can't. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Let's just run it and see what pops out. <laughs> well, I would expect it to be one, two, three again, because it makes just as little sense as your previous example to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what comes out is two, four, six. So it isn't a photocopy. Ha ha. It all depends on what you photocopy. So yeah. I, I, I was very, 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 very careful in installment 12 to say that a variable contains a literal value or a reference to an array. Sorry, a reference to an object. And arrays are objects. So what I copied for you was the address of the array. So you got a Xerox of the address, not a Xerox of the array. Which means you have to be bloody careful with arrays inside functions. Because you're not working on a copy of the array, you're working on a copy of the address. So if you damage my array that I've entrusted to you, You've damaged my array. Hmm. And that's the only thing I want to get home. If you pass an array, you're passing a reference to the array and therefore be careful with it. Okay. That's all. You introduced a lot of new words there. I did. References, objects. Yeah, and this is one of those chicken and egg things, right? So I have been telling you, I have been using the word object and telling you, I'll, t- I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later again. Okay. All right. So you can pass me a variable and I can't wreck it. But if you pass me an array, you're actually, I, yeah, I can I, wreck it. You can wreck it. And yeah, yes, that is, that is the takeaway, right? If I pass you two or boogers or false, so little li- literal values, then you're safe. You can't break anything. But if I pass you an array, be careful with it, please. I've entrusted you with my array. Hmm. Okay, that's it. That's all I wanted. That's okay. all I wanted to say. All right. And we will we will dive more into that later when we understand objects. But for now, I just need to draw that line because otherwise you may have spooky action at a distance. And spooky action at a distance is not pleasant. <laughs> okay. So now so you have a challenge for us, huh? Yes. So I would like you to write a function. And this is it's, like I say, nice to give challenges when we know what functions are. I would like you to give a function that you may name anything you like. 
And what I would like that function to spit out when it's finished running is the average value of every element in an array. So I would like your function to take one argument, which will be an array of numbers, and I want you to give me the average as the output of your function. And when you have this function created, I'd like you to test that it works by giving the average of all the input fields in the PBS Playground. Which luckily for us turns out to be three. Yeah, it's not a big number, but I'd like your function to work with any number of inputs. Okay. We're just going to test it with three. So, Well, we can and test just, it with one, two, or three. That is correct. Yes. Yes, actually, please do that. Yes. Okay. Then you know that you're working very well. Uh, just in case anyone is a little rusty on the old mathematics, the average of a set of numbers is the you get that average by adding them all together and then dividing by the number of them there are. So if there's three of them, you add the three numbers together and divide by three. If there's four of them, you add the four numbers together and divide by four, etc. I'm going to use an I in there somewhere, I'm thinking. No, there's Lupin involved. Yeah. There's Lupin involved, there's arrays involved, and there's functions involved. In other words, it's basically... In fact, you're going to use everything we've learned so far. You're going to have if statements in there. You're going to have loops in there. You're going to have functions in there. You're going to have operators in there to do division addition, at the very least. So that, this is actually going to cover everything. I have two weeks to do this. <laughs> and you have two weeks to do this. And the first thing we're going to do in the next installment is go through my solution, bearing in mind that if your solution gives the right answer and it looks completely different to mine, it is just as correct. Okay. What matters is the input and the output. I expect an array to go in. I expect an average to come out. Okay. How, how you do it is up to you. <laughs> okay. I give me about a 3% chance of succeeding at this task. I was thinking maybe one of the simpler things we'd learned already learned how to do, but okay. Well, no, the whole, right, you, you can't learn programming by rote. You learn programming by having a problem to solve and then looking at your collection of Lego bricks and the Lego bricks you have in your possession are variables, conditionals, operators, arrays, loops, and functions. They are the Lego bricks. And from those Lego bricks, I'd like you to build a castle that does averages. Okay, and I don't know how to make a brick by myself yet, but okay. Right. Okay, but remember, you're allowed to read all the previous installments with JavaScript. So if you say, I need a variable, go back to installment 12, or I think it was 12, where we describe variables. If you say, I need an if statement, go back to the next one, and it'll tell you how an if statement works. You are free to use everything we've done so far and all of my examples. Good. And it's not cheating. <laughs> In the slightest. Okay. Okay. So that is where we leave it for now. What I am going to say is that these function contraptions are spectacularly important. So we now know how to do functions the basic way. And the only thing we're going to talk about next time is more functions because they're so important. Oh, and we're good. going to talk about them in a really... Sp we're going to talk about them in a way that is really special because that's how they are used in the browser to make JavaScript do cool stuff in the browser. So I am laying really strong foundations here for our leap out of the playground. So next week's one is, uh, next two weeks, the next installment is really, really, really important in the getting out of the playground. It's, it's helping us get a leg over the fence and it's all about <laughs> function. We're going over the wall, guys. Yeah. Yeah, we, we really are. And so I have all the show notes written for everything up to the point where we leap out and we're getting close. All right. Sounds good, Bart. I guess we'll uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks and when I get back from Palm Springs. It must be great to be retired and go on holidays all the time. Anyway. 
But I'll be sitting at Palm Springs the whole time going, oh, man, I got this program I got to write. <laughs> no, that's what laptops are for. You can sit at the sun, sip a pina colada, whatever, you, whatever, whatever it is you like. <laughs> anyway, until next time, happy computing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is an unsponsored show, so if you like what you hear, you can help support the show by using the Amazon or App Store affiliate links you'll find over at podfeet.com. I love feedback, so if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com. If you want to join in the conversation with other listeners, you can go over to our Google Plus community at podfeet.com slash Google Plus or our Facebook group over at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.